Sonic Hello and welcome to Sonic Talk number 48, fast approaching 50. Um, this is 30th of May, uh, we're recording today, we'll be going live on the 1st of June. Is it the 1st of June tomorrow or the 31st of May? 31st of May. First to introduce is PJ Tracy, who's uh, had a week out. You're, I understand your studio was in, uh, in pieces last week. It was. It was in total disarray. Oh dear. Um, just time for some spring cleaning and moving some things around. Um, I sold some gear and picked up some new gear. Uh, and, uh, dangerous times. Yeah. Get anything that you shouldn't have? Yes, I did. Uh. Uh, I, bought a <laughs> I bought a Roland MC-808. Um, oh, okay. That's the sort of big to- groove box, isn't it? It is, yeah. And I used to own um, the the previous iteration of that and then the uh, MC505, and I had sold those pieces a few years back thinking, oh, I don't use them anymore. I've got a laptop. I use that. Um, but I, I missed the way that those pieces of gear made me think about music, the different right. ways in which they made me think about music, and the ability to take something and just sit it with it on your lap in the corner of a room and make a full arrangement. I, re- I really like that. Well, I'm glad to hear that you've been reunited. Does it feel so good? It it does. It feels like uh, like an old friend. Oh, that's very sweet. Yeah. Well, and uh, our other other chap from the other side of the pond is uh, Rich Hilton with us once again. How are you doing, Richard Hilton, in sunny Connecticut? Very well, and it is sunny and beautiful here today. Uh, Thank we're you still for suffering, having me. suffering from sort of drizzle in the UK. That's fact, a tremendous surprise to me. There was a frost last night. Can you believe that? It's nearly June and there was a frost. I, I mean, I don't know what's going on. It's, it, it doesn't seem right to me. Yeah. Okay, Rich, uh, had a good week? Yes, yeah, very good. We've been uh, busily taking out the old studio, which we put in in 1995, and has stood us well for 13 years. And now uh, today we begin to do the floors over, and then we begin putting in the new studio next week. Oh, wow. So you, you're taking the floors up and are you run it... You having to expand your cable runs, or are you just uh, polishing? No, the- no, it's it's just resurfacing the wood floors that haven't been, uh, you know, had any attention paid to them in the last dozen, thirteen years or so. And the squeaky wheel on the swivelly chair, the one with the, that leaves the scratch, huh? Yeah, yeah, I've been there. Well, uh, thanks for joining us, Richard and uh, Dave Spears from G4 Software. Hello, hey, Rich at Dave's. Oh, good lord. <laughs> I told you I was tired. I'm I'm losing it a little bit. Um, how did your Mini Monster Universal Binary go? Uh, yes, still we actually ongoing. Uh, well, we haven't really announced it yet. Oh, it's up there. It's still up there, but the people have been away and stuff like that. So we thought, well, you know, long weekend. There's no point announcing anything on a Friday night. So uh, we just yeah. thought, I'll tell you what, we'll do it when we're all back in, which is probably today. Well, we have a kind of. It's one of those um, strange coincidences, isn't it? Because this week. Uh, we have a holiday in the US and the UK, or it was last Monday. Was uh, what? What's the holiday in the US? Oh, Memorial Day. Yeah, yeah. Memorial Day. So you get a public holiday, and we get a public holiday for I'm not sure why, but we just had a public holiday, mm. and uh, it rained the whole time. Miserable. Anyway, and uh, also Mark Tinley, thanks for joining us. How are you doing, Mark? Hello. Very well. Have a good week. I have had the most bizarre week ever. Oh, really? Well, ever? That's saying ever. something. Ever, ever. Um, the first bit of my week was doing the Fields of the Nephilim show, yep. uh, which, which because I don't drink or do anything silly anymore, left me in a state of complete and utter panic for about two hours after the show because my adrenaline level went so high. I think my heart rate must have been about 200 BPM. Um, so that was very, very exciting. 
Really? Was that because um, everything nearly went wrong or just because it was really exciting? Yeah, lots of things nearly went wrong. It was just things going very nearly wrong. And certain pieces of equipment just don't work when you've got sweat pouring off you, do they? And, um, you know, laptop trackpads, things like that. Oh, no, laptop trackpads do not like moisture. You get the mouse goes all over the place. Always worth plugging in a mouse if you're going to be doing any sweating. uh, On the bank holiday weekend, which was um, Monday... I went and tried some vintage motorcycles with the Vintage Motorcycle Club, and they run uh, a training day, and I went to that, and I've been riding around on old bikes. Go on, what? Should I play you? I'm going to do another podcast. I don't know if anybody's listened to my Century of British Motorcycles podcast. I did, I heard that, yeah. Mm. Okay, well, I've got another one lined up, but this is an excerpt from it. I'm on a 1919 two-stroke Scott. My God, this is terrifying! <laughs> I've no idea how fast I'm going, but it feels terrifying. I'm probably going about 10 miles an hour. Oh my God, the brakes don't, the brakes don't work! <laughs> that sounded like fun. It sounded like a cross between yeah. a light aircraft and a, and a very highly revved lawnmower. That was that was the first bike I rode. That was a 1919 Scott, and it has sort of two levers for adjusting the throttle. One of them adjusts the amount of petrol, and the other adjusts the amount of air. It's kind of pre-carburetor. And it was just, it looked like a big scooter in a way. It was kind of a step-through thing with a huge fuel tank in the middle. And and at first it wasn't running right, and then it sort of came to life. And the brake, the brakes are like bicycle brakes, <laughs> but they just don't work. I mean, it was it was unbelievable. And then I got to try probably 10 or maybe 12 different vintage bikes from different eras. Um, so all in all, a very, very good day. And I think, it, I think it only cost me £10, actually, to go to that day. That sounds like a bargain. It, I mean, it absolutely is. But the club are trying to get uh, new members. So they, uh, the average age of membership is sort of people in their 60s and 70s and they've realized if they don't get young blood in now and they consider me young blood (laughs) so that was that was really good and then uh, to top the week off last night i live near the river about two o'clock in the morning there's this huge skid outside the house right This young 16-year-old lad in his car came screeching down here and and you think i'm going to say that he drove into the river but he didn't the police car following him skidded into the back of him and pushed him into the river Uh, and then for about three hours they were trying to fish everything out last night so we didn't get much sleep oh no well that sounds like i don't think i'm gonna be able to top that um at all (laughs) in any shape i've I've had a very dull a very dull week by by all uh by accounts um nothing at all rich i forgot to ask you did you um have you are you taking this opportunity to kind of upgrade any gear buying anything kind of big and new and shiny or are you just kind of sticking with the decor uh, we're actually changing the gear around quite a bit, but um, going to use vintage gear that we already own that I hadn't been using. It, we're um, about to base this studio on a vintage Neve console, a 5302, which is uh, originally a 12 by 2 broadcast console. Oh, wow. This was a 1974 console, console that was also known kind of affectionately as the Melbourne and then um, bringing up a whole, like I said, we've got a whole bunch of vintage gear that he's had that we've kept in racks to bring to the studios that we no longer go to. 
And so rather than keep them in those racks, I've decided to integrate them into the new studio design. And I'm um, really quite looking forward to it. And I'll, oh, that sounds great. I'll uh, show you some pictures after we're done, yeah. But, I mean, doesn't that mean you're going to have to upgrade the air conditioning by quite some considerable amount? Because the amount of get heat those things are going to chuck out is going to be enormous. Um, I don't expect so. You see, this studio is in a residence, and it's in what is a converted bedroom. And it's uh, as much a room full of gear as it is a proper control room. It doesn't actually have soffited speakers or any right. such thing. In fact, it's got windows on three sides, is on the third floor, and overlooks the bay. Oh, wow. So lovely. it's a really gorgeous environment in which to work. It's not exactly optimal acoustically, but we have uh, invested heavily, both uh, with our money and with our endorsement, to uh, a company called Real Traps who are here in Connecticut, who make some fantastic uh, sound controlling products. Have you found that the real traps do a good job of controlling the modes in the room? I think the real traps are fantastic. I really do. They're, wow. It's an outstanding product, and it made an extraordinary difference in this room, much larger than I ever would have believed. Oh, really? Wow. Are they pricey, or are they kind of... Mid- They're not. They're not terribly pricey. I mean, it depends on how you look at it. I mean... Uh, Ethan Weiner, who is uh, one of the two partners uh, involved in Real Traps, likes to say people will spend $2,000 on a compressor they can put across one track, and this will help everything. That's, that's his, a good quote. Uh, sort of, that's sort of his pitch on it, and he's right in a way. I mean, you have to. I have like, I don't know, I think 12 of them in the room now. Because the room's very uh, hard surface, lots of windows, lots of sheetrock, sure. cathedral ceilings, not terribly deep. So there's a kind of a wacky mid-range in there that needs to be brought under control, and the real traps do a great job. And what monitoring are you using in there, Rich? I use uh, Dynaudio M1s, and okay. uh, they're a 15-inch subwoofer. Once again, Matrix Synth at the blo- on his blog, the most underrated synths, and it's generally... Um, it's just his his sort of suggestion for a few. And uh, who wants to go first with the mo- with the most underrated synth? I guess it has to be you know it can be digital, but it can't be just a software thing. Sure. Well, there's a synth um, I recall very fondly from the late seventies. It was a Yamaha synth. I believe the number was SY one. And the thing that I remember fondly about this synth was that uh, in in playing it monophonically, of course. You could achieve vibrato by moving your finger side to side on the key. I, I know there was some okay. earlier French uh, musical instruments, uh, electronic instruments that did this. Some did it just have aftertouch, or was it... No, it wasn't so much a pressure thing. It was a side-to-side motion. And if I remember correctly, and I could be fantasizing and romanticizing here, but as I recall, the speed of the vibrato was at the speed your finger was moving. Like, it was actual pitch modulation side-to-side. Anybody anybody else have any recollection of this? No. I know it was used on the GX one. When when did you say this was out, Rich? I recall 1977, 1978. Okay. Yeah, no, I think it was their kind of, um, like, Roland SH-2000 type thing, an Art Pro Soloist type thing. Exactly. It had some uh, some switches on it with sort of uh, colorful paddles on the end of them, much like their organs of that day. Uh, it wasn't very large. It was about the size, I guess, of an SH-101 or maybe slightly bigger. PJ, uh, how about you? Well, um, I noticed that on the Matrix Synth blog, they've got um, the Insonic EPS. 
listed. Uh, but I got a lot of mileage back in the late 80s out of an ESQ-1. I thought that that was actually a really fantastic synth. Easy to program, um, had a good integrated sequencer, was great for scratching out ideas, doing full arrangements, that type of thing. Good, good sounding filter for, for a, a synth of its type. I had one as well. That, yeah, they were nice. I also had a VFX, but I seem to remember that the SQ-1 brought in um, a resonant filter. Am I right? It did. Or, yeah. Yep. And that made a massive difference But to, to being able to create sounds, because I always felt that the VFX was a bit kind of strange in the way that they used trans waves to emulate resonant filters and didn't actually have a, a resonant filter in there at all. But I felt that the ESQ-1 was a little bit underpowered for what I wanted to do with it. Um, but I'm having a real difficulty with this as a topic because I can't quite decide how you would decide if a synth was underrated because I personally think that most of them, by their own marketing, are all overrated. <laughs> right. <laughs> so none of the synths ever quite do what they tell you in their marketing that they're going to do or that your expectation is. Well, that's true. I mean, I suppose um, within the synth community, one might think... Um, underpriced would be a good um a good way of you know perhaps um measuring uh-huh. that underpriced oh, well, in the second hand market perhaps has to be well then the casio cz1 cz101 those those um things when they became kind of cheaper second hand and nobody wanted them anymore they they were pretty good well because phase distortion was a whole new world wasn't it and it the, as a synthesis method we got some great great bass sounds from the cz101 and it almost sounds analog and then they brought out that VZ1 thing, and that was bloody awful. And the same technology, horrible. I mean, I also liked the, the Yamaha FBO1 as well, which was a four-operator kind of DX100 or cut-down DX100, I think, kind of thing. Yeah, I remember that. You, people used to use it a lot for dance basses as well, didn't they? Yeah, it was the S-Express bass line sound, and the, um, and the sort of all those Rhythm King acts used that kind of oh, okay. slightly cheesy but sort of what they were calling house bays. Kind of tiny little box, wasn't it? It was like yeah. a third of a rack or a quarter rack or something. Did it just have a red LC LED display? So programming, it was kind of one of those things that was a, not a pleasing it, experience. It had the name of the, the patch on it and the number. But oh, if okay. you plugged a MIDI controller into it, like um, an Atari editor, right. Dr. T, I think, made yeah. all the editors oh, for oh, those no, It's things. all coming back now. <laughs> so you used to have your K, editor plugged in at the same time. And yeah, I seem to remember that. Dave. Mini Moog. Completely underrated, the Mini Moog, I <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Never got any good press. Yeah, you rarely hear it mentioned at all, do you? No, hardly ever. <laughs> no. Uh, no, we had a poll here, and uh, funnily enough, the Casio stuff came out. Um, the CZ101 is a big favourite with John here, um, because of the phase distortion synthesis, from a kind of techie point of view. Yeah. Um, also, the FZ1 sampler, that was interesting. Well, I used to run the Users Club for that, and yes, that had a great synthesizer in it. Mm-hmm. That was uh, that did most of the underworld. That dub no bass with my headman album before the Akai's arrived. Chris and me think the JD800 was massively underrated. Ah. It was just the wrong time. It was right on the cusp of the whole knobs and sliders revival. I'll agree with you on that as well. Yep, I agree too. And I also think the D70 was underrated. Ah, the D70. Because I think yeah. people had just kind of had enough of the D50, and when the D70 came out, it was like, oh, oh no, not more of the same. But actually, it was very different. 
eclipsed by the M1, wasn't it? Multi-timbral, it? wasn't it, the D70? It had a resonant filter in it as well, the oh, D70. Okay. Well, I, I, was looking, I was looking at this list, and I was really glad to see the Korg Monopoly up there, because I've got a Korg Monopoly, and I always... I don't know, I always had a, as a kid, I always wanted one, because I remember they got one into the, in the music shop in my local music store, and I always liked the look of it, it looked so kind of knobby, you know, there's lots of parameters on there, but uh, I have to say that probably one of the reasons that it is so underrated is that it's got one of those resonances that when you turn it up, all the bass disappears. So it's, mm. you can mm. get some really usable bass sounds out of it, but you, it requires really microscopic tweaks of the filter and the bass resonance and the, and the tuning and the wave selection between the oscillators. It's quite, I used it, I used it extensively as a bass synthesizer. I seem to remember with all these synths from this era that we're talking about, trying to get my own samples into them by various means and sort of thinking, if only I could put my own samples in there, I would be able to expand the possibilities of this infinitely. And then the K2000 came along and it just blew everything away to such an extent, being able to have my own sounds in there and, and the, the way you can manipulate stuff in a K2000 that I just sort of gave up on everything else, I'm afraid. That was a really big synthesizer, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. K2000 is great. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. don't know. I've got one right here. <laughs> yeah, I've got one too. Oh, okay. And uh, stepping back through the Insonic gear, I've got Insonic gear all around me because we have, we've been in Sonic and Dorsey's since the late 80s. And so I used all of those instruments. I literally either used or owned every single one of those instruments um, from the ESQ forward. And I think they helped design the paradigm for hardware-based workstations. I'm with you. I'm oh, with absolutely. you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. I think the M1 gets a lot of the credit for being the first full-blown workstation no. only because it was based on PCM samples but the um, the only thing the, that the M1 the only thing that the M1 had the SQ80 didn't have was decent drums yeah right they were almost five years apart in design too actually yeah. there were there were some years apart the uh, technology of ROM based sample you know stuffing all those low bitrate samples down onto a chip had advanced significantly by then um but and also I had some fond memories and we still have a C C Z series as you say Casio uh, instrument and I owned the F Z one and uh, had a uh, the uh, had the V Z as well as uh, Mark was talking about they were the, the were they 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 did they were the first people to do big rack mount versions as well weren't they Casio because they did the rack mount F Z or the F Z one M and the V Z one M and that, I remember them being and didn't they have a kind of it was like a, was it a joystick or a vector control? They were one of the early adopters of that kind of technology as well, the Casios. Yeah, I believe so. I believe so. I don't know if it was actual vector like sequential circuits slash wave station, but I think they had a joystick. It was just a four-way crossfader, basically, yeah. Right. Well, the interesting thing about those instruments is they sort of appeared as a response to FM and the popularity of FM, and they attempted to get a more FM-like sound than they seemed to have in the CZ, which, as we discussed previously, had a sort of an analog-y kind of a approach to it, sound to it. And uh, at one point, I was like sort of determined to understand what Casio's synthesis method was for the, uh, for the VZ. And so I kind of harangued them for a while and eventually received via mail a page full of math. <laughs> they could, they, it wasn't just like operator synthesis, like... Um, the Yamaha FM paradigm of the time and that rack mount instrument that Mark was referring to earlier, the four-operator thing. Um, it, it, 
It was just completely incomprehensible. It was the basic sense was turn a knob and see what happens. Well, it's funny because I was thinking about Casio. This got me thinking because I remember when I was a kid, you know, when I was just getting into kind of wanting a synthesizer, Casio were entry-level, certainly polyphonic electronic keyboards for a lot of people. Well, I remember riding off into a holiday with my parents with a VL tone in the back seat, working it and learning how to play it and making its little... I think it had some kind of chintzy little sequencer in it that you could put sure. so many notes into. And I was, I was, I just had. The, I think that they were amazingly clever with their attempt, their early attempts to uh, use their digital technology to create usable musical toys and instruments and things. I still have one of their saxophone MIDI controllers in my closet. Best place to keep it, if you ask me. Oh, I've got one of those. It's broken, though, I'm afraid. <laughs> they, because it's, it, well, I don't know what happened, because they were such a force, weren't they? I mean, the, the, with the, the face distortion stuff and then the, all those other things, they were a really big player in, in, this, kind of, in this world, and then they just kind of disappeared. Well, I, um, well uh, I can tell you exactly what happened with Casio, because I went, uh, there was a chap called Dave Clancy at Casio, who is a friend of mine, who left Casio, and I applied for his job. Um, someone else got his job, not me, and um, they decided to drop the entire pro range and just focus entirely on, um, you know, like home keyboards the range and stuff. Of so they right. just decided, that's it, you know, the pro range, we don't, we're not going to do that anymore. And the, the chap at um, Ensonic was called Jerry Kavarsky. And he moved to Korg. Yeah, yeah. he's now at Korg. He's a good guy. Mm. He's a real sort of... He's uh, a very good guy, He's yeah. a connecting kind of guy. He always he just knows everybody in the entire world, as far as I can tell. Good friend of mine, and he also went through Ensonic between Cassio and Korg. Ensonic was, was absorbed by Emu, and they went by the name Emu and Sonic for a while, and, and then Creative bought Emu, and, and they've just become Emu. Uh, do you believe that the Fismo actually toppled in Sonic? I mean, wasn't in Sonic able to ride out on products like the ASR10 and the DP4 and things like that? I, those were fantastic products. And I'll tell you what I think it was. I think it was the door thing they did because didn't they do that big door system, the Sonic <sighs> Paris? And that Paris. was an enormous, enormous amount of investment because they were really gunning for Pro Tools and the DigiDesign stuff because at the time, Pro Tools was really the only player in the game in that area and they right. really wanted to nail them. And they were, I remember at the time, all their advertising was, look, we've got more DSP, it's cheaper, the, the converters are better, you know, you can modularize oh, yeah. it much at more. At the time, it sounded much, much better than anything. But they lost, the, they lost that battle, didn't they? And I think that's probably more what happened. Well... They got that from the outside, I believe. I don't think they developed that in-house. I think they brought that in, mostly completed. Whereas they actually had a rather extensive R&D. Uh, their, their physical plant was very impressive, and they were doing their own chip design. And um, it was, it was very, they were, Most of their instruments came from Malvern, Pennsylvania. And I believe that the Paris system came from outside of the building they bought it, brought it in, and did whatever they did to it, and then released it. I don't think that's specifically what brought them down, and I'm not sure the FISMO single-handedly brought them down, although certainly it had an impact because they tried very hard with it and they failed miserably. But uh, I think that they were in trouble before that, and I think it's the normal running a small business, financial deals. Kind of, I, I think it related to things outside of the realm of whether they were successful or not with the ASR-10. Then they had the ASR-X drum machine, which people, some people really liked. Oh, I loved that. Yeah, I had one of those. 
And the, the other one I've just remembered that I really liked, and uh, Nick, I think, has still got, is an N-Sonic... Oh, am I allowed to mention him? I'm not, am I? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> you have dispensation. Uh, Nick has a, an N-Sonic TS-10, and I was able to make sounds with that that I could, wasn't able to make with anything else, such as uh, layering things so that uh, the pitch bend affected different layers differently. So you could you could hold down a note and go from minor to major by moving the pitch bend. That was supposed to be an absolutely amazing synth, but I seem to remember it was one of those things. Did it did it have um, kind of reliability issues? The TS10? I have one next no, to me right was, now. His was okay actually, and oh, okay. it loaded. I think it loaded some of the ASR10 library. CD-ROMs as well, if I remember right. They yes, and you could, use its, you could use its synth capabilities on those imported samples. Yeah, I mean, that's when it all that's when samplers and synths all started to make sense to me, the K2000 and the Insonic TS-10. Did that have the effects from, from the Insonic effects boxes that were out at the time? Yeah, the it did, yeah. Oh, man. That's, yeah, they sounded really good. I have a TS-12 next to me right now. I use it every day. Well, so that's, that's the one with the heavy-weighted keys, isn't it? Exactly. Is that it, though? <laughs> there yep. it is. It's a fascinating topic, and as you can imagine, on, on the Matrixing blog, there are pages and acres and feet and metres of comments. And just, you know, you can see with the discussion it's kind of got us going through. At this point, Rich has to vacate, because uh, as he was talking about his studio being refitted, uh, they've come in to sand the floors. So uh, I guess uh, that's a kind of incompatible with podcasting. So <laughs> we're going to see which. Uh, I hope you uh, keep out of the dust, mate. And um, Thanks. And we'll speak to you again soon. Thanks for joining see us. See you guys next week. Thanks. Bye, Bye Rich. Bye-bye. Cheers. Cheers. You know, Nick, I was, I was surprised that the Alesis Andromeda uh, made, the, made the list as being an under, underrated synth because anybody that I've ever talked to that's owned or played one of those things thinks it's the bee's knees. It certainly has held its price. It's probably gone up, in fact, because it's harder to get for. Because you can't get one. Because you can't yeah. get one. I think the reason why it didn't do well, well, partially is, is definitely the price, but also I think there was a, a bit of a skew in perception because Alesis is always known for making good equipment at very low prices, and then they... They come out with this beast that costs four thousand dollars U.S. and uh, I think people kind of turn the other way. Right. I think some of the I think some of their problem was probably down to the fact that when they released that synth, there was a lot of analog modeling stuff coming out, um, and it got kind of muddled up with that. And everyone was thinking, why is it so expensive? And they didn't really hammer the message home enough that it is an all analog or a digitally controlled, actually an analog synth, and it took me a while to actually sort of go, oh no, hang on a minute, this thing is actually analog. It, it didn't even get through. I did. I spent a couple of hours uh, at a show when it was released, and uh, they had to drag me away. I thought it was fantastic sounding. Yeah. But, I mean, for some reason, it just got slated at the time. But I think it's, again, a bit like the JD, you know, these things kind of, years later, people go, oh yeah, what about that, and what about that? And they come back into fashion. Yeah, I think so. I and mean, the other thing I saw here was the Rhodes Chroma, which I thought was quite nice. The Rhodes Arp Chroma. Mm. That's something ah. I, f- I very fondly, because I remember being, again, at my local music store. I went down and the guy, the rep came around and he'd set it up and he was giving a demonstration in store. And this is a tiny one room music store. You, um, Dave, you might know it. Duxon and Pinkers in Bar. Oh, yeah. And I went in there. In fact, I went in there the other day and they haven't got a single piece of technology in there. It's all guitar based at the moment. So it's yeah. a real, real sad day for me. That, but anyway, this guy was playing this thing, and I, I, I remember vividly him. I don't remember any of the sounds. The thing I remember most was him playing this kind of soundscape, which was kind of the ocean and seagulls. 
which of course has no musical relevance whatsoever. But I was I I just remember finding that incredibly impressive. <laughs> I love the Rhodes Chroma. Um, my friend Dana Bailey, who is Prince's former keyboard tech and uh, kind of whiz out at Paisley Park, we we ran a studio together in the late nineties, and uh, he had one of those, and they are really fun to play around with. Yeah, I I did get a chance to play one because Will uh, Gregory from Goldfrap bought one, um, and. I just turned up at the studio one day for a session and there it was. And I just thought, wow, I've got to play with this a little bit. And um, yeah, it, it does sound great. I mean, it's a little bit clunky to program, but yeah. D- Dave, you, didn't you tell me that you thought that, that the, um, what was it? The uh, left field album, the classic, la- they're, they're big users of that. Yeah. Leftism was supposedly. It, I don't think it was because I, I sold, I had a Fender Chroma Polaris. Um, which I sold to my friend Pat the Cat, who's a bit of a synth dealer, and he sold it to Leftfield. So I think they did it on a Fender Chroma Polaris. The Chroma Polaris was multi-timbral, from what I remember. It was, yeah. yeah but didn't that actually have a lot of operational issues? Didn't the, the membranes yeah. go and the com- contacts on the keyboard? I mean, it was a, it was a bit of a Friday, you know, Austin Allegro. When you went multi-timbral on it or did anything with tight MIDI timing, it just went way, way, way off. Yeah. So it had a sort of a mind of its own. God, so did the M1, actually. If you ever look at the MIDI clock on the M1, if you slave it to, if you, if you slave an external clock to the M1, you can see a lot of drift in its there MIDI was, I never used the sequencer on the M1, because I, I always used to find that, you know, unless you filtered out all the aftertouch, you'd play kind of eight bars on it in a drum pattern, and the memory was just full up. <laughs> I, I forget the name of the company, but there was a... Co- I owned it. Uh, there was a company that sold this little black box that you could hook up to the M1, and it and it added considerably to the internal memory of the M1. Mm. Yeah, didn't I, they have one that did samples as well, and you could put your own samples onto a card yeah. and plug it? In I the vaguely bed. remember that yeah. it went in the in the PCMCIA slot. Is that exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Thank God it's all got so much simpler now. They, these, <laughs> yeah. these young lads today, they don't know how easy they they've don't. got it. <laughs> the new. N6 Music Production Synthesizer From Codename Minimo The 61 Note Portable Synthesizer With incredible sonic power Based on motive tone generation Real-time audio control USB connectivity And computer integration Bundled with Cubase LE audio And MIDI sequencing software Create Produce Perform With the affordable and versatile N6 Music Production Synthesizer From www.mm6music.co.uk uh, Once again, I'd just like to say thank you very much to Yamaha UK for sponsoring the podcast. Um, the ad you've just heard was for their Minimo synthesizer, which is, uh, by all accounts, got a lot of the beef from the Motif sound engine, but in a much reduced cost package. I uh, thoroughly recommend you check it out. You can listen to sound examples at www.mm6music.co.uk. Go click there, make us look good. We have spent a lot of time on this topic, and it is fascinating, and I'm sure it will run and run and run, but it sort of, that dovetails quite nicely into the next, there's two other topics which were sort of more in the virtual world, and one of them is, I have it on fairly good authority that there's going to be a Reason 4 beta coming quite soon. Now, I'm not much of a Reason user, but I know that um, they're actually going to be doing a a kind of producer's tour in the UK um, with featuring uh, Danny McMillan and Paula Temple and James Bernard, who is, you know, is one of the, the kind of best demo guys on the circuit. And they'll be doing a couple of dates in uh, 12th or 13th of June in the UK. And I, I, a little bird told me that they may be displaying some um, Reason 4 beta kind of stuff. And uh, uh, I don't know, does anyone here use Reason? I've tried it. I've tried it out. I don't really no. use it very much. 
I don't, I don't use it because I try to avoid rewire at all cost. And I think the yeah. one thing that, that reason doesn't have, you know, is the ability to import audio or record audio directly into the program. I also think that uh, as cool as its paradigm is, it relies too heavily on the hardware, on the hardware paradigm, I think. You know, it's too, it's too twiddly. You know, especially its samplers. Now, I I don't have a lot of experience with the newer. Um, I've tried the the earlier versions of Reason, but the NNXT, the newer version of that uh, that sampler, maybe it's a little more programmable. But I, I prefer using I you know I have an Emu Emulator X and uh, Contact Two, and I use those extensively. And I I think I'd much rather use those than Reason. I think it's one of those. It's almost like a lifestyle choice, isn't it? Reason. It's one of those things that maybe people who are like the old pattern guys who like to program in pattern mode, who who have sort of had that taken away with the with the the new door breeds of um, door, which are more on a linear format. It enables them to kind of get into kind of drum machine tweak head mode and incorporate. Yeah, um, it. I don't know. I'm one of those guys, and I don't like it. Really. I mean. Yeah, I really like, I mean, I, you know, grew up on pattern mode and I got very upset with Cubase when that came out and it took me years to learn it. And then I had to switch to Logic instead of um, yeah. Notator, SL or whatever it was, Creator I was using. I think. And still now, unless I can see the whole song, if I'm using like Pro Tools or Logic, yeah. if I can't zoom out and see everything that's going on, I get confused. Uh, but I used to have, I used to be able to stack the patterns up in my head and I'd know what was going to happen next and... Um, I don't know. Somehow I can't get my head around reason at all. Dave, you said you use it occasionally. What? What's? I love it on the laptop. When I'm out, you know, I always muck about with it on the laptop. And um, Art here, he he swears by it. I mean, and and I've got to say, with the propeller head guys, they are the sort of benchmark of reliability. They may take time to get things out, but I don't think I've ever ever had anything that's crashed. Nope. Well, I've used it in rewire mode as a kind of additional sound source, you know, trying to just look for drum sounds and what have you. And I, I really, really like the way that that works. If only it didn't require such a finickety setup. And I don't necessarily think it's yeah. their fault. You know, it's it's just the rewire method of doing things. It's, you know, it depends on which order you boot your programs. And and if you get it wrong, you've got to sort of power it all down and start again. And I just found it, you know, life gets a bit short when you're doing that. But I know... Um, <laughs> Well, a, a mutual friend of ours, Lee Groves, who's a, a kind of you know, power programmer, I mean, he uses it a lot in rewire mode, doesn't he? And he runs a lot of beats off Reason into Logic. Uh, and he's yeah. he's pretty much a kind of just-in-the-machine guy, doesn't even use a mouse, you know, he's just trackpad, Mr. Trackpad. Does he, record, does he record the beats to tracks in Logic and then... Ultimately, yeah, yeah. Well, I think ultimately, yeah, that's what you do, because, I mean, you can do that. It's not that difficult, you just record the inputs, but it's... It's it isn't that difficult, but it's also not that intuitive within Logic. I don't know what it's like in other sequences with working with Rewire, but it's it's no, a- it's it's not intuitive at all inside of Cubase. And I I think uh, the way that I used Reason when I did use it, and I I enjoyed it. I mean, the sounds that come out of it are fantastic. Is I would just render down individual tracks. I'd solo them out and render them down as twenty four bit files, and then import them into Cubase and right. them that way. Mix Which them, is kind of alright, but you know, it's a thing. level of another level of faffing it isn't it that, you see know, I th- yeah the reason why i don't like reason is because i'm a fruity loops <laughs> fruity loops user and i think fruity oh. loops is actually infinitely better for doing what i want to do with it anyway. right i i want to like reason and i want to use it the same in the same way that i really want to be like and use ableton live and it's not that i don't it's just that i've never found enough time to kind of 
immerse myself in it and for long enough to kind of go wow this is just so cool and i must use it forever well live is like that i think i think there's a real um push towards that point and then you cross a certain plateau or barrier and and you're like wow you get it because there's it just changes the way you think about music that's that's why i went back to to a hardware groove box because it provides a lot of those things that uh, some of these software counterparts like live and, and reason are trying to do and it's very immediate it makes you think about music differently you can create in patterns or you can create free form you can do it any way you want and then you're not uh of course as we as we all know via midi you're not uh tied to the sound set that is inside the groove box because you can just midi it up or transfer the midi into the computer sure. and you yeah, know, yeah. plug in any, any soft sense or that kind of makes sense got. a different type of timing you know, you hear a lot of people talk about that with the NPCs. They have a, a certain type of timing that the hip hop guys really like. The R and B um, producer yeah, set. Sure. I find the same thing with the Roland Groove Boxes. They have they have a certain swing to them, just a certain groove to them that I can't achieve inside of Cubase without you know moving individual MIDI events around Which, or yeah. editing the audio extensively afterwards. Well, that's a good point. I mean, do, is it just because they're they're so locked down because it's all a, a self-contained unit that you know they can just be much more well much more precise within to the within themselves i don't know how that works or is it just some clever somebody's just found the kind of groove and <laughs> i suppose if it's called a groove box it should have a good groove quantize but that's a that's a good question because i don't think the resolution is actually up to the spec of something like cubase or logic maybe you that's know, it have... maybe because it's not it just kind of goes oh. well that'll have to do you know <laughs> it's actually should be <laughs> yeah, it should maybe. be here but it'll have to do and that kind of makes it unique and yeah. the swing time, the swing time in the Roland boxes is quite specific and really rather cool. And when you uh, try and do it in Logic and use the swing A, swing B, swing C, although the note durations of those are supposed to be the same, it doesn't sound the same. I don't know why. No, it doesn't sound the same. When I used a mm-hmm. step sequence using an MC two hundred two, I think it was um, uh, one hundred and ninety two divisions yeah to a bar and i think that this the roll and swing time is 15 and 9 reason for beta soon we think and if you want to go if you're in the uk and you want us to go and see some real um, good exponents of the reason kind of way of life uh danny mcmillan paula temple james bernard are going to be uh at confetti nottingham on tuesday the 12th of june uh, that's in the evening and also access to music in london on wednesday the 13th of june i'll put the links into the show notes and you can book a ticket i think they're six quid for reason users uh registered or tenor if you're if you've got nothing to do with reason and not registered user uh, while we're on this subject um does anyone use any of the steinberg virtual stuff or has any experience of it because i noticed that there's a universal binary of the uh, virtual basis that's just come out and, uh, I own the first version of Virtual Guitarist. Well, that's mm. interesting because I I know quite a lot of people, particularly kind of composers to picture and or, yeah. or people who compose to very tight briefs rather than perhaps um, cre- creating kind of pop music, you know, following their noses, that really, really dig Virtual Guitarist and they just kind of totally swear by it. And I've never <laughs> really experienced it because it, it came along just at the point that we'd moved over to OS ten and got into audio units and there was a kind of a, a bit of a divide between being able to run it under audio units and, and they never got it together quite in time for me to get into that. It's it's useful for that, Nick. That's what I've used it for. Um, I, I have to admit it, I don't use it often. But <clears throat> I've done, uh, I did some commercial work. I was working on a commercial for Sports Illustrated and uh, kind of an in- investor 
alumni video for Marquette University, which is a big Jesuit university in the States. And um, they, they wanted some music that sounded like like other artists. And so I was able to pick some patterns out of virtual guitarist and kind of you know, affect them, throw them through amp simulation and, and uh, bury them in the mix. And they, and they work just fine, you know, in, in brief uh, instances within, within a longer piece. But I think, yeah, if you were, if you were going to try to use it on a pop record or something like that, I don't think it would work very well. well I wonder, the first I think iteration. maybe the R&B guys are using it because you get those kind of really straight strummed acoustic guitar patterns. And they, that doesn't sound like a real, real player to me. It sounds like it's probably, you know... A, Isn't some, there a Madonna track that's like that? I imagine there might be. I don't know, but I mean, there's in the family. There's Groove. They're now up to Groove Agent Three, Virtual Guitarist Two, Virtual Bassist, and this thing called X Phrase, which kind of look quite interesting. Which is kind of four, a four um, track essentially polyphonic phrase creation and synthesis uh, modulation type um, plugin. Which I I tried to download today, but then I couldn't find my Logic dongle, so I couldn't run it. I thought it might be running a, a standalone. Um, and I wondered, you know. Whether- See, I think I've I've suffered the same fate as you because I was I was using Logic and then um, I, I think I made a jump to Pro Tools for a while, so none of this stuff would work in Pro Tools. And I was using Logic in OS nine with VST plugins, and then I suddenly upgraded to ten, and then you couldn't run. Thought yeah. about lots of these things and just didn't really get a chance to try them because none of the VST stuff works in Logic. Yeah. I mean, I've actually got a version of Cubase on my computer now just so I can test these things out to make sure I'm not missing out on anything too important. You know? Right. Dave, have you um, have you seen any of these things? Uh, I did use... In fact, I'm exactly the same as you and Mark. I did use it in OS 9 in Logic when, when you were allowed to use VSTs, but um, it subsequently kind of vanished. Um, I thought it was great, but um, it, it was one of those instruments that kind of frustrated me in the fact that you know, as soon as you start playing with it, you go, oh, this is cool, this is cool. I wonder if it can do this. And then you then you kind of reach a barrier and you kind of, and then you think, oh, actually, you know, maybe I should have just learned to play guitar. And I, and I, and I know a couple of dynamite guitarists, so if ever I need them, I'll just pull them in. Yeah, exactly, Dave. I, fe- I felt the same way. I, I felt like it got you about three quarters of the way there. And then, mm. you know, maybe if you could just push it a little further. And I guess that's what Virtual Guitarist 2 is supposed to do. Uh, it allows you to create your own patterns, strum patterns and things like that. Oh, we did, I don't know how natural it sounds. I think we, I, I haven't we shot a demo uh, from, uh, must have been last year, Nam, um, of one of the guys demoing. Because now that Yamaha distribute the Steinberg things in the U.S., um, we shot a demo of Virtual Guitarist 2, and it did, you know, it was quite impressive. I mean, you know, obviously the demo was geared more towards kind of rocking out and guitar solos and stuff, but it sounded pretty good from what I remember. I'll, I'll see if I can dig out the uh, link to the news item, and you can go and check out the, the actual demo that the guy did for us. Um, but yeah, X-Phrase looks interesting, and in you've almost got a whole band. I know Groove Agent was a kind of real groundbreaker, wasn't it, um, from what I remember, as being kind of for, for being a virtual drummer. Yeah, well, I'm interested in virtual drumming. I can't. I mean, I play the guitar anyway, so I am a guitarist. So yeah, well, it, I suppose it would. You know, trying virtual guitarist, that it probably didn't. It was probably more frustrating to try to make that do what I wanted it to do than to just simply pick up a guitar. Yeah, and well, play that would it. that would make total sense, I guess. It brought back pretty horrible memories for me because don't forget, I had six years of uh, recording midi guitar and midi drums and midi sax and midi violin and midi everything, and then I'd spend months and months and months editing this stuff. That would then go out on the on a disc. 
Ah, you didn't do anything that might have ended up in Steinberg Groove, groove Agent in, in any Steinberg virtual instruments, did you? Uh, this, it's possible. I know there's a connection there. So, uh, But no, I left that behind me long ago. Right. Well, fair <laughs> enough. <man. laughs> yeah. uh, it was good fun, though. I mean, I have to say, it was good fun. We, you know, we recorded people like Steve Hackett and stuff like that, and I got to know an awful lot of people's styles. But yeah. working with uh, MIDI guitars was pretty horrible. Yeah, I know, Mark, you like to use them quite a lot, so... Um... Well, I don't. I try not to think of it as a real guitar. I just try to think of it as, instead of me trying to transpose what I'm playing onto a keyboard and then getting it to do what I want it to do, I can just play the guitar chords and don't have to try and think it onto a keyboard and I can, you know, I just have to play a bit slower and accept that it's got its limitations and stuff. You know, playing an A chord on a guitar is totally different to playing an A chord on a piano. Mm. So yeah. you get this sort of upside-down thing going on. And is, is Groove Agent still holding its own out there? It seems to me like uh, it may be eclipsed by a lot of the other virtual drummers that have come along the pike. Obviously, the thing that springs to mind is the uh, DigiDesign Strike might well Strike, yeah. be giving it a run for its money. Yeah. There, I mean, I know BFD and probably Toon Tracks and all those other guys can do this kind of thing, but they seem to be more geared around the actual... So I have a funny feeling there's um, the same person behind the inception of Groot's agent and um, who's now part of the Digi Air team. Virtual guitarist and, and those those instruments were all originally created by Wazoo for Steinberg, weren't they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah well, there we go. Very smart okay. guy. <laughs> This is this, and, and this comes from it's on the Gearsluts uh, board, which is uh, Gearsluts.com. That's Gearsluts with a Z, uh, where it's kind of quite a cool board actually. A lot of people talk about a lot more high end stuff, and they're very busy. And somebody posted um, this this topic, which said, "What would you drop ten thousand bucks on, music wise?" Synthesizers.com system with the pounds of the dollar at the minute, I can get the biggest Studio One Ten synth modular system for about uh, fourteen thousand dollars. So you'd have to subsidise it slightly. Oh, I suppose ten thousand dollars. Yeah. yeah. Well, well I, I, yeah. Okay. Well, we can we can have we can have sterling for that for our side of things. So, P- <laughs> Mark, what about you? I've been fascinated for many years by something called a Chima Capybara. Uh, I've been trying to twist an endorsement out of them for years and years and years, and they won't do one. They say that they'll sell me one at artist rate, and that's the best they can do, and that's several thousand dollars. So, and it's the sort of the sound effects machine that they use in all the big movies. It's a sound design and, thing, isn't it? Yeah, and it morphs one signal to another signal, and um, yeah, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I kind of know what it does, but I've not really heard or experienced one, and... Um, it sounds like it does what I believe things should be doing now. Okay. Kima is is a lot like um, a lot like Reactor on steroids, actually. I mean, it, is it, it hardware a, DSP or does it run yeah. just on your? Yeah, yeah, it's hardware DSP and it's a uh, it's got a programming language that's very similar to Reactor or Max MSP, um, where you can kind of get down into the the core level of things and combine different forms of synthesis, granular synthesis, and phase vocoding and all kinds of interesting things like that. So, oh, oh stop, stop it! <laughs> Mark sold. Okay, well, that's what you're going to spend yours on. Okay, PJ, what about you? Well, um, I read the the link that you sent, yeah. and it said if you had to start over, if you own no gear, what would you? Oh, I what? know, but I yeah, I suppose we can do that. But I, I yeah, that's that's a fair point. I just kind of like the idea of having ten grand to spend. To, okay, to drop. well, but, yeah. if I just had ten grand to spend, I think I'd I think I'd buy a bunch of software synthesizers and a couple of liquid channels. That's the focus, focus right liquid, liquid channel. Channels. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How well, let's liquid see. channels. How much are they? Yeah. Can pick them up here in the U.S. for about twenty-three hundred. Yeah. Oh, okay. For for a mono channel. 
I would probably just invest it in more computing power, to be honest, um, mm. which is not very musical. Mm. Although I would actually quite like to have a nice drum kit again, you know, just a nice little, very expensive vintage drum kit. You know, not nothing, not a gong and twin bass drums or anything, just a little bouncy, boingy kind of jazz kit that, <laughs> that was really expensive. Little Gretsch or DW? Yeah, that kind oh. of thing. Well, I, when, I, when I used to play a little bit, I, had, I actually had a Rogers um, red marble oh. kit that had, um, what was the stuff? Swivomatic fittings. And it was it was one of the Rogers ones. It was of 1962 or 1963, and I bought it from a local music store. Not the same one um, that I saw the synths in, but uh, it was called Assembly Music in uh, Bath, which is no longer there. And um, I went in one day and sort of said, oh, I'd really like to get a drum kit. And he goes, oh, I've got just the thing. It's just, I had it in the window for a while. It's a bit faded. And I think he sold it for me for £250, and it was... And a wooden matching snare, it had Roger's hi-hat stand, Roger's snare. It was absolutely beautiful, and I ended up um, recording a load of samples with it. And I hired it out to, to a lot of people, actually, because um, it sounded like, you know, the, remember the meters? The drum sound mm-hmm. in that? You could basically hang a mic above it, and it would sound like the meters, or James Brown. It, it was ah. just that, that kind of era of kit, and it sounded fantastic. I, I ha- had it stored for so long that all the lugs split, and I sold it to this guy... Um, who came by and he was so excited because he'd just seen the snare part of the kit that I sold for whatever it was, and he'd seen the snare, just the snare, for the same price as I was charging for the entire kit. So uh, wow. I obviously made a bit of a mistake, but he was such a fan, I sort of felt it was going to the right place. I mean, he knew everything about it. Apparently Rogers had their own forest, which they used to harvest to make their own drums from. You know, they, they grew oh, their wow. own wood. Wow. <laughs> it was kind of like, you know, he knew wow. to that level. So it was kind of nice that it went somewhere. But yeah, I'd like another drum kit. You know, I learned I learned something interesting on, along those lines. There's a a drum maker called um, Craviato. They make snares. Uh huh. I, I think it's one guy, and uh, they might make actual entire kits. I haven't looked into that, but I know that in my um, Tune Track Custom and Vintage Sample Library, um, one of his snares is sampled. Actually, actually two of them. Yep. And the wood that's used for the shell of those snares was harvested off the bottom of Lake Superior. Here in Minnesota, uh, there was a shipwreck back in the 1850s, and there was a ton of lumber dumped off off a ship that had been harvested out of the Superior National Forest. And they go down periodically, and they haul up large tracks of this lumber, and he uses this stuff that's been preserved in the icy waters of Lake Superior to make drum shells. Wow. me. That's that's the sort of ultimate that's, connoisseur drum, doesn't it? Totally yeah. cosmic, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I thought that when you brought stuff up from underwater, that when it hit the oxygen, it just disintegrated. Is that not the case? I guess I, not. I guess not. Yeah. Well, anyway, that that just thought was a bit of fun. <laughs> I just, I don't know what, I, I was just basically looking on YouTube and I, I, you know, as you do, you kind of end up wandering off in all these kind of odd directions and I can't remember how I got to that, but uh, I just remember it being a really massive, I mean, it, was, it was number one in the US, I think, wasn't it? Let the music oh, play. Yeah. 1983. I was, ten, I, I was 10 years old when that came out. Wow. And that was, was just, fa- I mean, you, you couldn't go anywhere without hearing it. I just remember it being a really big club record. It, in a lot of ways, it was kind of the precursor to sort of quite a lot of Certainly pop electro, anyway, that would be fair to say. What's what's doing the bass line in that? 
in that. That's got to be something Roland, doesn't it? The, it sounds like a Roland, yeah. It's got to be something like that. It sounds a bit like that Madonna record as well. Um, Holiday. Get into the groove or something. Yeah, like, oh, Holiday. Yeah. yeah, really similar kind of bass line. Uh, no, I hated all this stuff when it all first came out. <laughs> Do you remember all that Joyce Sims, All in All, and all that? I mean, I'd spent sort of years trying to make machines sound human, and then when all this kind of electro stuff started coming, becoming massive in the late 80s, it was like, whoa, 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 hang on a minute, what's going on? It took me ages and ages to get back into it. You know, I'm, I'm with you, Dave. I grew, I grew up with this stuff, and I, I never got into it. And now I'm just kind of coming around to, you know, using it as sort of a veneer on some things, and it works well, but I, I never appreciated it coming up through it i was way more into well as we've talked about in the past stevie wonder and herbie hancock and those guys yeah 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 me too i mean I, you know i loved all the sort of trevor horn stuff and a lot of that was you know trying to, it's basically just trying to make a machine sound human yeah and then all of this kind of you know make a machine sound like a machine well how easy is that come on and how easy how simple are those bass lines you know complexity is not everything 1983 i think i was into bauhaus sisters of mercy they used to use a drum machine, and right. they, uh, it had an 808, and it sounded like a drum machine. Well, I, I guess I'm just kind of um, exposing my pop um, my pop roots, I suppose. I wouldn't have listened to this at all. I mean, if it had been on the radio, I might have listened to it. I think, I mean, I was living in Brixton. I'd just moved to London, and I used to tune my radio into all these weird hip-hop kind of stations and listen to all this underground hip-hop stuff, and I was desperately trying to fuse underground hip-hop with the Sisters of Mercy, Bauhaus kind of style. And you know what? Nobody's really ever done that yet, have they? They still haven't done that. No, true, true. But, yeah. there, but there was a lot of stuff that came out at that time that sounded almost identical to that. And I mean, the, the, the better end of it would be like Human League and that type of thing. And, and uh, well, I don't know. Oh, just, well, just be good actually, to me. My favourite record from that time is Imaginations, Music and Lights. That is the only record from all of those uh, style from that particular genre of music that I liked, and I love that record. I love the way the bass line slides. Ah, bouncy as hell. Love it. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's really interesting, though, that that's 83, because about the same time you had Dolby coming out with his stuff, which was oh, which I loved. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And then you had, oh, come on, who's at the SOS band with Just Be Good To Me? That was all around that period know. of time. That was when Herbie Hancock released Rocket, wasn't it? In mm-hmm. 83, yeah. I believe? So yeah, that that's was a fantastic record. That was sort of seminal for hip-hop, because I was into early hip-hop at the time, too, listening to Grandmaster Flash and, and all of those, Sugar Hill Gang and all those guys. But uh, Well, I think we got the TR-707 by then, hadn't we? And that was O-Behind DMX that those guys were using. Yeah, Grandmaster Flash and Marley Mel. Mm-hmm. I actually was in a, a recording studio in New York. I'm working with uh, a band called Expose, who are, I think are kind of fairly horrid um, US pop banana rama type band and um, we heard that Marley Marl was in the next studio and I was just so I, I, I spent much, so much time hanging around outside in the lobby hoping I'd see him kind of wander about but I never did get the chance to, to see the great man I worked with a band that did a record with him they did a remake of White Lines and he was on our tour for about a year nearly a year oh wow I programmed it, in fact. Can I help that out? Oh, well <laughs> done, my I programmed it. Well done. <laughs> Good for you. Sonic State. After we talked a little bit about the, the, uh, that 1960s London Studios piece that, we, that I put up as a news item, which was just a link to a couple of YouTube videos, and I got uh, uh, a, an email from a chap called Matt Boardman, who's uh, in the US, who basically said he saw there was this brilliant series also um, 
called Disappearing London, and it had Suggs from Madness, and they looked at this place called Torag Studios, which I think is where the White Stripes record all their stuff when they're in the UK, and it's basically Valve and really ancient stuff. They've got like Shaw Unidines, a Valve desk, toragstudios.com. Yeah, their studio's amazing. You know it's about amazing. it, do you, Dave? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it awesome lo- looks place. kind of like a fun, you know, uh, like a real antidote to uh, to using computers in music. I've got one of the original Abbey Road desks, the old EMI. Yeah, it oh. looked really good. Anyway, I, I wanted to say thanks thanks to Matt, um, who also says keep up the podcast. So he's a fan. We actually got some feedback and some inform some information. So on that on that ending, I think it's an apt point to say um, thanks very much for joining us. Obviously, we've lost Rich Hilton. He had to go and have his floors sanded, so we won't have him saying goodbye now. But I can say thank you very much to PJ Tracy from Minneapolis. Thank you, Nick. It's been a pleasure. And Dave Spears from GeForce Music. GeForce Software. No, GeForce Software. Sorry. <laughs> Gosh. Uh, makers of the uh, a, a very, well, almost the complete set of universal binaries is available if you can go and dig them out. Coming yep. soon to a press release near you. Yeah, probably today or tomorrow. That's what you said Thank last week. That's what you said last yeah. week. I know, I know. We're late with everything. I'm going to change my middle name to late. And of course, Mark Tinley. <laughs> Thank you very much to you, and thank you especially for that uh, motorbikes podcast information. When you, when's that going to be out then? Your podcast of you hur- hurtling around the track? Yeah, when I finished editing it. I haven't plugged the uh, the phone lines for quite some time. Remember, you can call us directly via Skype on the handle Sonic Talk. Leave us a message. Um, we'd be happy to broadcast anything you have to say, as long as it's not too weird or uh, unbroadcastable. And also, um, you can reach us via landlines, uh, which also goes through to the Skype answer phone. Uh, in the US, it's 312-376-8089. Uh, if you're outside the US, 001-312-376-8089. Or if you're in the UK, 0207-870-8616. And of course, there's good old email with Sonic Talk at sonicstate.com thanks very much for listening that's it sonic states.com <laughs> <laughs>